Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the post-national championship edition of the College 12 Pack. I'm your host, Patrick Kahn, the senior editor of the College Wires. With me, as always, if you're watching us on YouTube, on to your right, my left, Tyler Natuno of LSU Tigers Wire. I am for the win. And it was a... Uh, it was a, a good championship game. I wouldn't say it was a great championship game considering the difference in the score, uh, but it was relatively close until ultimately Michigan was able to flex their muscles. You know, Tyler, that's kind of where I want to start off with the college football national championship wrap-up. And I think it ultimately went the way a lot of people expected. Now, I, I thought that Washington, with their speed and, and their quarterback play, uh, that it would be a relatively close game throughout, and I, I thought ultimately they would pull ahead. But I have to say, Michael Michael Penix Jr. picked a heck of a time to have a terrible football game, didn't he? Yeah, certainly. You know, I mean, like I picked Michigan to win this game. Um, I thought it would kind of play out similarly to how it did. But, I mean, in our staff predictions, my score prediction was like 27-24. So definitely didn't expect it to be just kind of the outright domination that it was. But, man, I mean – like you said, I mean, that's just what Michigan's defense, you know, up front specifically was able to do in this game to Michael Penix, you know, an offense that had been so electric, you know, drawing comparisons to 2019 LSU, they only give up 301 yards in this game. And, 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 you know, they only sacked Penix one time, but they were after him all night, you know, really disruptive. He threw a couple interceptions, uh, you know, just, just not his night and just really impressive overall, I'd say from, from the Michigan defense. Yeah, you had to really be impressed with that Michigan defense with the way that they played. Uh, the, the big plays early on with Donovan Edwards just showing how dynamic he is as kind of the one-two punch with with Blake Corum. And we know what Corum could do. We've seen it time and time again, setting the all-time rushing record at Michigan. He's an absolute touchdown machine. But Donovan Edwards was the explosive guy, and, and he was able to take advantage of some defensive miscues. I didn't understand some of the defensive alignments, especially on that second touchdown literally nobody on that on that side of the field as he as he scored both of his rushing touchdowns from 40 or more yards I believe the first one was 41 and the second one was 46 or vice versa but they were able to execute that way and then at times it just felt like you know Washington could never get anything going you know and, and give that give that defense credit for for making it really difficult for Penix, but it just felt like he was never comfortable. And by the end of the game, he's grabbing his ribs. You know, he was hurting with the pounding he was taking, but he just never was able to get anything going. And the absence of the deep ball, I think really hurt Washington's chances in that game. Yeah. I mean, they just didn't really have time to, to let those plays set up. You know, they were just getting to him so fast. And, and, you know, like you said, looking at Michigan's offense, you know, Donovan Edwards, I think it was really kind of telling in this game, like a guy who comes in, you know, kind of had seen his carries diminish, like a guy who was seemingly sort of falling out of favor with the staff comes in, provides a huge boost, uh, takes six carries for 104 yards and two touchdowns. Like you said that I think it was the 46 yarder. That second one was, I believe the longest touchdown run 
uh, in CFP national championship history. So, yeah, I mean, they ran for more than 300 yards in this game. You know, Quorum had a great game, too. And, and, you know, it's really interesting. Like, I think our whole narrative on this Michigan team was, you know, what will they do when J.J. McCarthy has to go win them the game? Well, it, they're 15-0. and 0, It's over. They won the national championship, and he never had to do that. You know, they he only completed 10 passes in this game, threw for 140 yards. I mean, they just were able to run down, you know, uh, Washington's throat, the way their offensive line played, the push they were getting up front. I mean, it was apparent from the opening drive. They ran right down the field on him. And, you know, McCarthy didn't do anything special, but when you're running the ball like that, that really opens up a lot of easy plays in the passing game. And he, for the most part, I thought, I think hit those. Can we go back and change who gets the Joe Moore award? Because I really think that Washington front was absolutely uh, under fire all night. And it just felt like Michigan never had that type of, of problem with, with keeping their quarterback upright. Yeah, they were able to to generate some some pass rush issues. Um, but ultimately Washington never really could threaten that offensive line. And, you know, hat tip to those guys and and Sharon Moore, who's the offensive line coach, really challenged those guys before the season and they 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 ultimately carried this team down the stretch. I mean you talk about the play of J.J. McCarthy, and he was good all year long. You talk about the play of Blake Horam and, and Donovan Edwards and, and Roman Wilson and some of those other key guys. But ultimately, it began and end with that with that group up front on both sides of the ball for Michigan. Yeah, fully agree. I mean, that's the story of this game, certainly, and really this whole season for Michigan is how dominant they were on the lines of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. And you know, I said it on the show last week before the game. Football's about blocking and tackling above all else. And clearly, I mean, that's where this Michigan team, you know, made its money this year. And, you know, what they did to Alabama, they did in this game to an even greater extent. Um, and just really impressive to me. Like, like this Michigan team along the lines of scrimmage is like what we think of Georgia and Alabama being most years, right? Like they did, they out Georgia, Georgia, they out Bama, Bama this year. And that's why they're national champions. Ultimately, you know, JJ McCarthy did enough. They have good backs, but, but it, it's really, I think the lines of scrimmage that they carried this team. You know, it uh, brings up my next question for you, Tyler. What does this mean for Jim Harbaugh, a guy that we've talked about at length and, but it just seems like now with Jim Har- Harbaugh finally winning the national championship does he now go to the NFL and try to chase that that elusive Super Bowl uh, championship trophy? I mean, there are teams that are needing a head coach. Atlanta's one. The Chargers are another. We thought that they might perhaps take, bring him into Chicago, but it sounds like Matt Eberplus is going to return at least for another year. So my question is, does Harbaugh make the jump to the next level? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, obviously we're heading into the third straight offseason of Harbaugh NFL speculation, um, and I think it's going to continue, you know, this year until every job is full, and if he doesn't leave, you know, it'll continue again next year probably. But, I mean, yeah, as we stand right now, there's, I think, something like five jobs open, I want to say, something along those lines. Um, You know, uh, Seahawks job just opened today with Pete Carroll uh, stepping aside, looks like to take a new role within the organization. So, I mean, obviously the one that, that I think everyone is is talking about is the Chargers opening, which is, you know, kind of self-evidently appealing for a number of reasons. I mean, you've got a young rising star quarterback in Justin Herbert who, you know, you've got you to like, you know, what you could do with him. You know, if you're Jim Harbaugh, your track record with, you know, quarterbacks, you know, obviously the guy who developed Andrew Luck. You know, I think that, uh, you know that's going to be a naturally appealing job. And there's been decent amount of smoke tying him to it. I mean, it really does sound like 
I don't want to say it's a done deal because it's not what I'm hearing, but it, it just sounds like there is mutual interest there and that barring some sort of setback, there's a pretty good chance that's the direction they end up going in. Um, but even if they don't, there's other jobs he's been tied to too, like the Raiders. You know, I think ultimately he's you know, done all he can at Michigan. Now they've won the national title. They ended their, you know, 20 something year, uh, playoff or national championship drought. You know, now I think it's going to be more appealing for him to leave than it's been the past couple off seasons. Um, and you know, I think it's telling, you know, he's got that contract reportedly on his desk to, that would extend him long-term at Michigan, but he can't look at NFL jobs if he signs it. So hasn't done that yet. That's pretty telling to me. You look at the jobs you decide and then you sign it. Right. Um, but no, I, I think you bring up a good point. You know, the, the Raiders job is interesting to me for, for Harbaugh. They're also going to need a quarterback in most, most likelihood. What about, you know, hiring Harbaugh and then turn around and drafting JJ McCarthy, a guy he's familiar with and continue developing that, that could be interesting. The, the one that kind of cracks me up from a narrative perspective would be Seattle. Um, you know, Pete Carroll took that job leaving USC when they were about to face sanctions. Uh, there's a chance that Michigan's probably going to face some sanctions due to the Connor Stallions, uh, you know, sca- the sign ceiling scandal. There's obviously the recruiting violations uh, from the uh, what they call the hamburger uh, during uh, 2020 uh, COVID year uh, when they weren't supposed to be having face to face recruiting visits. And, and so it'd be interesting to see if Seattle might be a place, you know, just go from one coach to left the college game uh, for incoming sanctions and get another one with Jim Harbaugh. It'll be interesting to kind of see how that plays out. And I'm sure it'll be a topic of conversation in the coming weeks. But now I want to talk about the Big Ten. Let's dive into this. So, Tyler, when you look at the Big Ten heading into next year, you know, obviously Michigan's coming off a national championship appearance or a national championship. You also have Washington coming into the fold. Uh, obviously, they made it all the way to the national championship game. You have Oregon, who was a team that was kind of on the fringe of potentially sneaking in, uh, ultimately couldn't beat Washington, and that was their undoing. Um, you also have USC, UCLA coming in to, to go with the teams that are already there. And an 18-team league, and there's no more division, so we're going to see a lot more, I think, better matchups. And, and teams like Iowa can't feast on a weak Big Ten West because now there is no Big Ten West, and it's now it becomes a round robin of who you play each year. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's shaping up to be a really interesting kind of year one uh, of this new Big Ten because we have questions about a lot of these teams that are at the top. You know, I mean. I think if you're kind of blocking it out, like I would say the teams that you can probably feel pretty good about all things considered are, you know, Michigan, even losing, you know, the guys are going to lose JJ McCarthy, Blake Corum. You still kind of feel like there's not going to be, I mean, put it this way. Like, do you feel like that they, the JJ McCarthy is just a guy they can't replace in 2024. I mean, I, I kind of think they probably could. Um, but, you know, I think you got to feel pretty good about that. And then, you know, I'd also throw, you know, Ohio State in there, you know, again, in spite of what they lose and kind of a disappointing 11, as disappointing as an 11 and two season can be, uh, you know, they bring in Will Howard, which I do like that move. I think that is an interesting move that raises the ceiling a little bit. I think you got to feel good about Oregon too, you know, even losing Bo Nix. They bring in uh, Dylan Gabriel, a guy who played really good football uh, all in all at Oklahoma. I think kind of a similar move to what bringing in Bo Nix was. You got to think they'll be able to kind of keep that going. 
But there's a lot of teams we have questions about. I mean, Washington, first of all, losing a ton. Um, you know, we're going to kind of see, you know, going with Will Rogers, a guy who's kind of seen all of his success in an air raid system. I'm curious how that works. Uh, but, you know, Penn State, new offensive coordinator, USC, new defensive coordinator. Like these teams enter 2024 with a lot to prove. And I, I don't know if there's I mean, you'd have to give the nod to Michigan right now, I think. But I don't really know if there's a clear like delineation of power at the top of the league. You know, don't forget that Ohio State's also bringing in a, a very good running back. Uh, when you talk about Quinchon Judkins, who uh, I appreciated the petty of announcing that he was committing to Ohio State just minutes after the final gun goes off in the national championship game. Uh, but, you know, he's coming in. You know, you have Will Howard, who's a dual threat guy. So it'll be really interesting to see, not not that pure passer that Ryan Day's used in the past, but more of a, a guy who can kind of do that. You know, I think, you know, underrated hire going into the Big Ten is Andy uh, Kotaneki, the new offensive coordinator who's coming over from Kansas. We saw the work that he did with Jalen Daniels, Jason Bean, in that offense. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's a serious upgrade uh, when you look at the the Penn State offensive coordinator. Um, it, it, what will be interesting to me is how much does that Penn State defense suffer with Manny Diaz leaving to take the Duke job as the head coach there? Um, I, I think they're really a talented team. Luckily for them, they only have to face Ohio State uh, next year. They're not having to play uh, Michigan as well as they've been doing for the last decade. Uh, but they do have other other matchups such as USC that they're going to have to play. But, you know, I, I really like the, the Big Ten going into next year, and I think it brings a lot more um, excitement. And, and, and really the biggest excitement we have to we have to look at Iowa uh, a team that is really good defensively, how much more improved is that offense going to be now that Brian Ferentz is no longer running the show? Uh, that's what I'm going to be interested to see as we look at the Big Ten heading into the 2024 season. But let's let's circle back. Let's go back to Michigan because there was a conversation that we had off air, and I thought we had to include this. Uh, I wrote about it on College Sports Wire. You can go and, and you can read it. Uh, you know, go on Twitter, yell at me, call me a moron, whatever you want. But I, I ranked the the college football playoff fourteen playoff era champions. And for me, when I looked at Michigan, I had a hard time putting them in the top five. But I, I think at number six, and, and and I think a lot of it has to do with when you look offensively. They were a team that didn't really scare me offensively, but they were consistent. Um, you know, when you look at some of the offenses of the past, when you talk about the Joe Burrows or the 2020 Alabama offenses, those were scary offenses. Uh, Michigan didn't really have that, but they had an offense that was going to pound you to death um, and, and a big reason why they were 15-0 and this year and won the national championship. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think that this is necessarily a Michigan team that's going to be remembered the way, like, say, 2019 LSU was or 2020 Alabama was or 2021 Georgia even. Like, I think that it's going to be remembered a little bit differently. But with that being said, I think that this is one of the most dominant college football teams I've, I've ever watched. You know, um, it wasn't pretty. You know, it, it was kind of a not not very aesthetically pleasing team to watch. But, man, I mean – you look at what they did in the first half of the year. I mean, they didn't really play anyone, but I mean, all of those games were just never even close. They, they did. They played out the exact same way, essentially. And I think that to me is what made Michigan so dominant is no, no game got out of, you know, out of plan for them. Like they, they, 
kept every game sort of in the game state that they wanted it to. You know, you look at when they started playing the tougher teams, you know, Penn State, Ohio State, Alabama, and the Rose Bowl. None of those games were blowouts, right? Like it wasn't like, you know, wow. It wasn't even like the national championship where it's like, wow, that was a decisive win. But also those games never got away from how Michigan wanted them to be played. And it never really felt like they were that much in doubt. You know, maybe the Alabama game did at times, you know, when they had to come back there. But even then, it felt like they were in a pretty advantageous spot, you know, with just the way that game was playing out. So, I mean, I think to me, I just look at this Michigan team and I don't know if I've just seen a team that just absolutely bodies everyone on both sides of the ball on the lines of scrimmage like this. I mean, you know, like we said, it wasn't aesthetically pleasing, but they did have a ton of offensive success against Washington. I mean, they ran for 300 something yards in that game. So, you know, I think that just the way they're able to do that against everyone to me is, is dominant in a way that I haven't really seen many teams. And by the way, a stat I saw, they're the uh, first national champion since 2001 Miami that led every game at halftime. So that kind of just goes to show what I'm saying about how all these games just stayed how they wanted them to be. Yeah, and, and it goes back to your point earlier about J.J. McCarthy not having to win football games because they had the lead. They could rely on their run game. Their defense could get after uh, the quarterback, the opposing quarterback. And, and you're right, and aesthetically pleasing probably depends on who you ask, right, Tyler? Because if you people like me and you who grew up in the South, we like those high-powered offenses, those high-flying. I mean, you grew up watching Florida Gators with Urban Meyer and, and that offense, and I grew up in the air raid Mike Leach throwing the ball around 60 to 70 times a game. And so, yeah, it may not be aesthetically pleasing to those in the South, but, you know, in the North, that's how they like to play football. They like to run the ball, play defense, and it, it worked. Um, and still, I still think, you know, I'm just going to run down my list real quick and you just tell me where you might agree, disagree. I got LSU in 2019 as the number one team. That offense between Joe Burrow, that uh, the, the wide receivers, the running backs just – all the skill positions that they had. The 2020 Alabama Crimson Tide team went 13-0 and uh, in a, a COVID-shortened season, but again, dominating, and especially Devonta Smith, the way that he played, and Mac Jones. I have the 2022 Georgia team that went 15-0. and uh, They were pretty dominant, and if you watch that national championship game last year, it was a one-sided affair. 2018 Clemson going 15-0. and I thought that was a very talented team. The 2021 Georgia Bulldogs went 14 and one, and then I have Michigan coming in at number six. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to debate a lot of those. I mean, I think especially it's hard to say that like you know the top three of that 2019 LSU, 2020 Alabama, and 28. What was wait? What did you have, did you have a number three? 2022 Georgia. 2022 Georgia. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with those. You know, three teams that went undefeated and were like Michigan. You know pretty dominant in every single game. Uh, you know, I mean, I think maybe you could make an argument over 2018 Clemson. I mean, I, like, I, I think I don't really have a big dispute with where you have them in the rankings. I just do think they are up there in the mix of, you know, as dominant teams we've ever seen. I mean, you know, we haven't seen a ton of undefeated uh, national champions in recent years. You know, it, it's difficult to do. Um, and I think, you know, doing it in the Big Ten East is pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, I think so, especially when you know you're having to play at Penn State. You know you're having to play in Ohio State teams that are, you know, habitually top 10 teams every year. So, I, you know, they they proved it. I mean, their, their schedule was lacking this year as they got started, um, but they eventually had, you know, had to play more, you know, tougher games. I mean, obviously, um, they had to beat a talented Iowa team in, in the Big Ten title game. They beat Ohio State. 
They beat Penn State. They beat Alabama um, and then beat a very talented Washington team. And this is interesting. Kalen DeBoer, that was the first time as the Washington head coach that he lost to an AP-ranked team. Um, So he beat a really good uh, a really good team with a really good head coach. And that's why people are going to be excited about Washington moving forward. But speaking of Washington, let's talk about quarterback, Michael Penix, uh, a guy who we all thought, you know, was deserving of the Heisman hype, uh, finished second to Jaden Daniels. Obviously Jaden Daniels won with putting up over 5,000 yards of offense over 50 touchdowns. Uh, he was an absolute cheat code this year, but you look at Michael Penix. He, he, once again, was the first quarterback to throw for over 4,500 yards in back-to-back seasons since Patrick Mahomes. Um, that just shows how his consistently level. Now, my big question is, based on the way that he played in this game, did he tank his draft stock um, based on what happened on the biggest stage against an NFL-like defense? Uh, are people potentially stepping back a little bit from the Penix hype? Yeah, I mean, you know, with no disrespect intended to Michael Penix, who's who's a great player, I think it's hard to argue he didn't, at least to an extent, right? I mean, like, I think you really hit the nail on the head uh, that this happened against an NFL-like defense, the most NFL-like defense he's played this year. You know, that that defensive front really caused a lot of problems. And it's not like I don't think Washington's – I don't think Washington's offensive line had a great game by any stretch. stretch. But that's also, you know, like you said, the Joe Moore award-winning offensive line. You know, I think it's concerning. And, and like the bigger issue for Penix is is more just that he already had a lot working against him. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, he's 23. He'll be 24 by the time his rookie season starts. Um, and just to kind of put that in perspective, you know, we, how you know how much older some of these COVID guys are. Like, I mean, Anthony Richardson, who is entering into his second season in the league, obviously injury plagued rookie year. He's two years younger than Penix, almost two whole years younger than Penix. He's 22. So, or sorry, he's 21 going on 22. So, you know, I think that's going to always work against you. You know, when you're a quarterback, you know, age is definitely a concern. And then also the injuries for him, man. I mean, he's got four, he's torn his ACL four times in college. I mean, that's, that's something that really weighs you down. I think if he had gone out against that Michigan team and had, you know, an electric performance, the likes of which he had against Texas, I think, right or wrong, someone probably would have talked themselves into maybe, you know, jumping at him in the top 15 or something like that. I still think maybe, maybe he's a fringe, you know, sneak into the first round guy. I think in all likelihood though, you're probably looking at kind of what I always thought for him all along, which is a, you know, solid, if not kind of risky day two pickup. Yeah, I think, I think you bring up a good point. You know, the age is concerned. The way that he performed against that defense might be a concern. The injury history is a concern. I mean, let's not forget this, you know, six years of playing college football. <laughs> now, the the other thing that I, I want to bring up and just want your opinion of, because it's always been my opinion that, and I'm not basing this on any concrete evidence, but it seems like the NFL doesn't value a left-handed quarterback the way that they would a right-handed quarterback. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's silly. Like, I don't think there's really any logical reason for it, but there is, I don't think there's any denying there's a stigma around it. I mean, you haven't seen many of them in recent years. I mean, Tua is kind of the only one, you know, obviously Tua and kind of Michael Vick before him are sort of the the two that come to mind in terms of prominent NFL lefties. Um, I mean, truthfully, I think it's silly. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you, did you see the video that was going viral on Twitter where they like, flipped they, they like mirrored the footage to make it look mm-hmm. like he was throwing righty and they were like wow this completely changed the way i look at him 
So, I mean, that's silly. Like, it shouldn't do that. But the fact of the matter is, like, yeah, hard to deny there is at least some sort of stigma against it. So, yeah, all this is just to say that, like, Michael Penix has a lot of things that are kind of weighing him down as a prospect that aren't really inside of his control. Uh, but this game was, and I think he probably needed to have a better performance. Let's, uh, well, let's also bring up the fact that uh, quarterbacks are habitually overdrafted in the NFL. We know that. Um, but a team will get it. Uh, a team will reach for him. And like you said, I, I felt like he was a day two guy anyway. Um, could he have worked his way into the first round? For me, yes, with a strong performance in the national championship game. Um, but based on what happened on the field and where we're looking at right now, I still feel like day two is his spot. All right, as we get ready to wrap up this edition of the College 12-Pack, let's talk about some way-too-early narratives. Uh, Tyler, what is your way-too-early narrative that you're looking forward to in 2024? Yeah, I'm going down to Oxford. What is Lane Kiffin cooking here? I mean, so they've been, I mean, they're always really active in the portal, but like this year was, has been another level. I mean, they've went in and gotten, you know, some of the best players in the entire group, you know, Walter Nolan, a a former five-star defensive lineman, former number one overall prospect actually from Texas A&M, you know, Princely Uman Mielin, an edge rusher from Florida, uh, best edge rusher in the portal, you know, Juice Wells, really good receiver from South Carolina. Like, you know, they did lose Quinchon Junkins, as we talked about earlier in the show. He's heading to Ohio State. That's a major loss. They get Ulysses Bentley, their number two running back. He's coming back. So that's encouraging. But I mean, to me, like, what is Lane, what is Lane gearing up for here? Because it looks like to me that he thinks he has something of a maybe a championship window here. I mean, you know, the playoff is expanding. I think you're looking at, you know, a reality where there are not going to be many years where like a nine and three SEC team doesn't make the postseason. Um, you know, that's just kind of the direction we're heading. So, I mean, to me, I'm looking at this and you look at their schedule. It's not that bad. Their non-conference schedule is a joke. Their hardest game is at wake. And then, you know, in CC, it's relatively easy. And the hardest games they get at home in Georgia and Oklahoma, like, I mean, does Kiffin see this as, as a, as kind of a, you know, one year, prove it, make that leap to the bigger job. He's kind of clearly always been wanting, you know, We'll we'll talk about it later, but the the logo behind me might be looking for a coach, uh, you know, in a little less than a year from now, you know. So I, you know, could a job like that come calling if Kiffin can take get this team over the edge and get them into the playoff? I mean, we'll see how things shape up, you know, as we get closer to the season. But I think this is among the more interesting teams to watch in twenty twenty four. This is clearly a I'm all in on getting Ole Miss uh, into the playoff. And obviously, like this year, if it would have been a 12-team playoff, he would have been in. Uh, But ultimately, all in on the playoff, all in on a championship. Um, And then again, like I agree with you. I think the bigger job, you know, whether that's that's Miami, uh, depending on what Mario Cristobal does, uh, the Florida Gators could be a team that he looks at. I mean, he has had some success in Florida. We saw what he did at Florida Atlantic. you know, so that got him the Ole Miss job. I I always felt like it was always waiting for the bigger job. Um, you know, you could view Miami as a as an even jump, but I, I do think the Florida uh, job, for instance, is one that I would very much be uh, looking at. So I agree with you 100. And I think the Ole Miss 12 team playoff hopeful thing uh, that is a narrative to watch. You know, I'm going to go to my backyard and talk about the Big 12. You know, who has the inside track on this new look Big 12? Obviously, Colorado's coming in, and we know what Colorado brings with Shador Sanders, with Coach Prime. 
in their in their group. I mean, they're trying to show us if you can rebuild an offensive line in one single offseason with all the guys that they're bringing in uh, with the transfer portal. Obviously, they uh, signed the number one offensive tackle in the 2024 recruiting class. It'd be interesting how Seton looks, um, you know, and if he plays immediately. But, you know, they, they've stocked up there. Um, you obviously talk about Arizona State. They're they're a young team, and they've got a lot of work to do. Uh, they got Jaden Rashada, who only played in three games this last year. Hopefully, they'll play a little bit more and rely on him moving forward. Obviously, you have Utah with Cam Rising returning. They lost to Quinton Jackson to the um, transfer portal. Ultimately, ended up going to Arkansas, uh, but they still, I still believe that they believe in Cam Rising. You know, he's coming back for his seventh season. And and just totally off topic, I think it's interesting. Tyler Shug, Alan Bowman who was also in the uh, the Big 12, and Cam Rising. All three quarterbacks were part of that 2018 recruiting class. All three are going into their seventh year in college football, which is just amazing to me. Um, and then, obviously, you look at Arizona. They're a new team coming in with Noah Fafita and the way that he took over for Jaden uh, Deloria and, and the way that they built that. And Arizona, 10-3. and three. I, I have to think that Arizona is one of the teams you really got to watch out for in the new-look Big 12. Obviously, Texas is going to be gone. Oklahoma's gone. Uh, it'll be interesting to see with Kansas State losing Will Howard. How does Kansas State look? Um, they have a guy, Avery Johnson, young quarterback, very athletic. We'll see how he looks. I'm not sure how I feel about him as a pure passer, but he definitely can make some uh, make some way, um, some headway there in the run game. And then obviously you look at Oklahoma State, who played in the championship. Alan Bowman's coming back. They have the Doak Walker Award winner. And then obviously my Red Raiders. I want to see how they how they look next year. Can they finally play a season with only one starting quarterback, Baron Morton coming in, uh, five-star wide receiver Micah Hudson, and they they made some moves in the transfer portal as well. And we'll see kind of how that all plays out. But um, when you look at the Big 12, I, I think it's an exciting time for them. Obviously, the big dogs are gone, uh, but I still think there's a ton of talent, especially with the four new teams. And the one thing that I will say that I'm looking forward most is the first time that Utah and BYU play football field. Bring the Holy War on. I'm ready. Yeah, it's going to be fun. But you're you're right. Like I think the, the, the Big 12 is really kind of low-key, a fascinating conference heading into next year because there's just, you know, it's kind of up for grabs completely. There, there's a power vacuum here, you know. I think you look at the, the the teams that are staying, you know, from the old the old guard of the Big 12. I think, you know, all of those teams are in decent positions. I'd say, except for maybe Baylor. That's the only one that's, I'd say, in, mm, in a bit of a, uh, yeah, in a, down, in a down spot. But I think there's reason for optimism pretty much everywhere else. You know, but none of those teams have really proven that they're ready to, like, take over this league and make it theirs. You look at the teams coming in, I mean, Colorado, you know, who knows? I mean, really going to be fascinating to see what, what he can do in year two there. You know, Arizona State kind of a year zero situation. They were postseason ineligible, you know, a lot of roster issues. They're probably still a year or two away from the, the finished product under Kenny Dillingham, you know, Arizona really big leap this year, you know, kind of dealing with some strife, you know, from an athletic department perspective, but the on-field product should be pretty good again. You know, Utah, we'll see, like, I mean, I kind of think that this is the best program in the new big 12 you know, Cam Rising didn't play at all this year. You know, if he's healthy, that could be huge. We just don't really know. And then, you know, the teams that were new this past year, I mean, you know, UCF kind of showed some spunk. You know, they made a bowl game. You know, maybe can Houston take some sort of leap? You know, Willie Fritz, I really like that hire. I think that was the right hire for them. I don't know if it's going to bear like instantaneous fruit, but I, you know, I think there's a lot of 
teams that are really fascinating and none that really have like clear trajectories. I think 2024 is going to be an important year for a lot of programs in this conference. And that's why it's going to be so interesting to watch. Yeah. And to go back to your point about, you know, Baylor, I'm uh, just talking about Dave Aranda. I'm starting to think of Ron Roberts, the former defensive coordinator was kind of scapegoated. Uh, he ended up going to Auburn and now he's at Florida. Uh, Baylor hasn't been the same since he left, and they're obviously obviously going to make some changes on offense. Uh, going to be a new quarterback uh, with Blake Shapin uh, hitting the transfer portal. And, and so when I look at Baylor, yeah, I agree with you. They're a team I'm looking at. I'm not real sure. I kind of have them in the same category of like a Cincinnati, yeah. which is absolutely abysmal this last season. Uh, we'll see how Scott Satterfield is able to turn that around, if he's able to turn that around. And a team we didn't even mention that I forget just got so much talent coming back. Uh, is Kansas. You know, when you look at, you know, Jalen Daniels, quarterback, he should be healthy, hopefully. Uh, you know, he he dealt with some back issues. I know back issues don't get better, but potentially a team. Uh, their star running back, Devin Neal, is coming back. And you just have to like the job that Lance Leipold is doing in Lawrence. So they're another team that I would definitely keep my eyes on moving into 2024. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I think that you know, like you said, Jalen Daniels dealing with back issues kind of all of last year. It's hard to hard to feel very good about that just because his health has been such a limiting factor for them. But, you know, they've still looked good even when he hasn't played. That's a testament to Lance Leipold and the job that, you know, he's done there. I think, you know, you do have the question of losing Andy Kotelnicki to Penn State, like you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier in the show. You know, we'll see how they respond to that. You know, a guy that I think really did an impressive job of doing kind of more with less, not to say that that's not a talented room, but, you know, to have, you know, one of the better offenses in the country was really, really impressive with the talent they had. So questions at Kansas, but I mean, of these returning programs, I mean, they might be the best positioned right now, not even mentioning the fact that, you know, they're starting uh, just last week, I believe started uh, ground on their new stadium. They're building a brand new stadium. So money going into the program resources, a lot of reasons for optimism there. And there's going to be a lot to talk about with college football in the coming weeks. Obviously, we have National Signing Day coming up in February, uh, but there's also college basketball going on. Uh, we're probably going to get into the, the Caitlin Clark chase for 3,527 points as she tries to become the all-time scoring leader in women's basketball history. And, and honestly, if you put her on the list with the men, she's high up there as well. She's going to be someone we're going to talk about. Obviously, we're going to dive into some college basketball as the run to March Madness is underway. We're already getting into conference play, and we're going to separate the men from the boys uh, as we march on to college basketball. But that's going to do it for this edition of the College 12 Pack. Uh, for Tyler, I'm Patrick. We'll see you next week. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.